the strong businessman won't let the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. Hey, my name is Felix Thier. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the power of a shallow rock bottom and how it can help to quickly rebound from failure, the secret power of in-person validation, and how to identify whether a product idea is perfect for word of mouth. Before the show, I wanted to chat about Exchange Marketplace. It's Shopify's marketplace to buy and sell businesses. In addition to browsing businesses that are up for sale, you can now gift a business to an aspiring entrepreneur in your life for as little as $50. Visit exchangemarketplace.com slash categories slash gift dash a dash business for more information, or you can go to the show notes to get the link as well. Today, I'm joined by Colby Bauer from Thread Wallets. Thread Wallets designs functional and expressive carry products and accessories and was started in 2015 and based out of Utah and is an eight-figure business. Welcome, Colby. Well, thank you very much, Felix. Stoked to be on on the episode. All right. So tell us more about the the genesis of the business. How did it all begin? Yeah. Um, 2014, I was at school at BYU-Hawaii and I was uh, taking a class and they had this weekend thing where it was, uh, it was a Saturday all day thing. And there's two guys flew in, um, from Utah and they said that the name of the conference or, or gig was start and launch or is a, uh, yeah, IDA and launch a Kickstarter campaign within 24 hours. And that piqued my interest because I was um, very entrepreneurial. I took all nothing but entrepreneurship classes. So I went to this conference and um, I noticed that these products that they were they were talking about within the conference, they, they were just saying that you don't need to have it all nailed down. It doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to, you just need to get it out there. And so that was kind of their mentality was just get the ball rolling. And they used a lot of examples of smaller products like wallets um, that had performed really well. And kind of simultaneously, I had lost my wallet to the ocean and I went on to find a wallet and I couldn't find anything. So I was actually using a rubber band at the time and I fell in love with the rubber band that I was using, but I, I realized I could make it a little bit more functional and more secure. So, um, you know, as those, I was sitting in the conference thinking about the wallet I was using, I loved minimalism. Um, and then I also loved lifestyle brands like Vans and Stance was up and coming, um, Brixton, you know, those, those brands that really spoke to me within the action sports world, I realized that there wasn't really much of a, um, you know, it wasn't, it was kind of an afterthought. The category was really dying. There wasn't much innovation. And so I realized maybe there's, um, an opportunity I could, I could take hold of the wallet category, get my foot in the door and then, and start to broaden the, the product line later. And, um, basically starting out with a very, very basic wall. In fact, I was kind of embarrassed by it, but what I did was I went to a local fabric store and it was just a white piece of elastic I bought. And I went over to my girlfriend's house, went into, um, her room. She had a old sewing machine and she sewed up, um, a wallet. Basically it was just an elastic loop a, a better rubber band of sorts. And I loved it. Um, it was just a little bit more wide. It was more secure. And then I was thinking, Man, but I don't like the white. I want to, I want to print on it. And so I looked up, I found this company out of Utah, where, which I had just moved back to Utah for school. And, um, I walked in, I bought some more of that white fabric from the fabric store, walked into the, this company. And I asked him if I could try printing on this elastic. And one of the guys there, I think he was probably an intern. He was standing there at the heat press that you print on. And I was like, Hey, do you mind if I, you mind if I try printing on this? And he said, um, no, let's do it. And I said, well, do I have no idea how this is going to go down? This could like melt and break, you know, break your machine. I have no idea. And he's like, let's just do it. And I was like, I freaking love you, dude. So, um, he grabbed one of the prints from his slot. He was printing on socks at the time. And so the print was a poop emoji, just like a repeating pattern of poop emojis. <laughs> nice. And he put it on the elastic. We heat pressed it. I was waiting there for 40 seconds, just wondering what was going to happen. And opened up the heat press. Come to find out, wasn't melted all over the machine, and the print was just perfect. I was so 
so excited. I think that was like when my, the vision for what I wanted to accomplish, the doors kind of swung open and I saw this massive opportunity because now I knew I could print any color, any photo, anything I wanted onto this elastic. And then we could, we could actually uh, launch a campaign, a Kickstarter campaign. So anyways, that's, that was kind of the, where the idea of thread came about. And then, uh, you know, we launched a Kickstarter campaign and the rest is history. Yeah. So give us an idea of the timeline. So you mentioned you saw this Kickstarter conference talk thing that inspired you into uh, basically just get started without trying to perfect it before you ever try to create a product or try to sell it. So between that and between the time that you created that first prototype, like how much time had passed by? That the conference was 2000, uh, it was probably around... It was probably around November of 2014. I nailed down the product that I wanted to launch on Kickstarter in January of 2015. And we launched the campaign in March of 2015. Got it. And I'm looking at the campaign here. And I think it says here's a pledge of or um, goal of 8,300. And you just crack that 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 goal so not a huge goal that you set what was the idea behind this kickstarter campaign like what was the the goal of launching on kickstarter well first off validation was key i, I liked the idea of minimum viable product uh, and that was preached time and time again at school you have to just have the bare bones of your product and then let it grow and i love that idea but the problem with validation is you can get false validation because most of the time you're asking friends and family if the idea is good. And so a lot of times those friends and family are going to say, yeah, it's a good idea, you know, and, and um, you just take their word for it. But I think what Kickstarter allowed for was random people to be exposed to this idea. And then they're forced, well, not forced, but they have an opportunity to put money down on the product if they like it. And so then validation becomes true and you can rely on that. And so I think for us, it wasn't about hitting a home run with, you know, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatnot. It was more just, is this product idea validated enough to get the ball rolling? And that was kind of my approach is just not hit a home run, but just get on first base and then um, we'll work to second base and third base and so on. Got it. Yeah. I think that there is this um, lots of kind of thought around this minimal viable product and just get the bare bones version of it, just put it in front of a, a market to see if there's any demand for it. How do you know though, when you have that, I think that's a balancing act, right? About spending too much time tinkering away in private versus maybe getting something out there too early. How do you kind of figure out the right balance between those two, two, two extremes? Man, that's such a solid question. I didn't realize uh, what we had until we went to farmer's markets. We were out in Hawaii um, the year later. Sorry, yeah, so this is 2014 still. Um, we had made a few wallets, and we were out, um, and we decided to take some of this product to a farmer's market. And I didn't realize, because like I said, it was the simplest product. I was I was really embarrassed by how simple it was. You know, I was like, anybody could do this. Why would I, why would, would anybody buy it? let alone for $15. But when I took them to the farmer's market, I, I got to see this face-to-face -face feedback that I would say was priceless and can't be really replicated online only because there's a dialogue around the product. And then there's also facial expressions and, um, and, you know, just conversation around, Oh, I could buy this for a friend or Oh, so-and-so would love that style, you know? And so then you get to see the buying behavior. Um, and then to me, that's when you, you really can see if the product will actually sell. Um, and so I, to me, that was it, it maybe different for others, but for us, it was that face-to-face, -face, you know, um, at the farmer's market that could be at a trade show or some convention or some pop-up shop that you run or whatever. But ultimately I think there's so much value around, um, that, in-person interaction with a product that you can't really replace. Yeah, what it sounds like you're saying is like there's this validation for the, I guess, the viability of the business, but then there's also this validation that gives you that internal belief to keep on going. And when it came to this in-person validation at these farmers market or selling to people in person, it really kind of gave you that light bulb moment where you're like, this is 
this is a real person that, you know, that you don't know, that's a stranger that just met you for the first time that is willing to give you their money for something that you created. I think early on, that's what entrepreneurs need, especially um, in, in the circumstance I was faced with was I was uh, newly married and I was about to graduate college. And so it was a fork in the road for me because on when I talked with my father-in-law asking um, to marry his daughter, he said, you have to, you know, take care of her or else I'll kill you. And I, and I believed it, you know, he's no kind pressure. of joking, but at the same time, yeah, no, no pressure. I, I felt the weight of that. And, um, and so he was, a uh, very much an A plus B equals C, uh, mentality with, you know, his career. And so that put a lot of pressure on me to really consider going down that route, which I had an opportunity to work at my dad's financial planning firm and pretty much, um, he set it up to, so that I could one day take it over. And so that was very enticing. Um, in fact, I, I went down that road for a little bit. I did a few summer internships and I realized that, um, I, I needed that time to go down that road to realize that's not what I wanted to do. And I think oftentimes you need, you need a, a bad experience to be able to check that off the list so that you can confidently go down a different route. Um, but I needed that, like you're saying, Felix, with just the, the motivation, the energy to know that I was, I was landing on something. I needed that confidence, um, to pursue thread because otherwise I probably would be in a corporate job right now. And so I think early on, especially entrepreneurs need just energy. They just need, um, people to maybe believe in, in them first because that leap is so scary. Um, and like I said, especially when I was uh, newly married and trying to establish a, a family, you know, and so I think um, mm -hmm. if you can surround yourself with with people, maybe people you don't know or people you do know that are going to help motivate you and get through the, those scary times, that's what I would recommend. It, it seems like something that you almost need a dose of every once in a while, especially when you get to new plateaus where you're maybe going from a six-figure business, a seven-figure business, an eight-figure business where you don't you haven't you don't have that belief instilled in you yet that you can get there did you have other moments along the way where you're like okay this it gives me the the energy the belief in myself to 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 continue growing this business oh dude 2020 has uh been a, a crazy one as you know <laughs> so yeah mm. absolutely there's been i mean besides 2020 but there are ebbs and flows of business no doubt and, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I had was a, a strong businessman won't let the pendulum swing too far one way or the other. So when you're succeeding and you're doing really well, you can still keep a, an even kill. You can still, um, be level headed and, and you celebrate, but you don't get too high because you know, it potentially can come swinging the other way. And so when it does swing the other way, you can emotionally, um, be stable and, and not let yourself get too down because if you're swinging too far on both sides, that's when it really starts to shake. And I think your, your mental health can suffer and then therefore the business can suffer. And so keeping, um, this pendulum under control, um, and what I would also consider, I call a shallow rock bottom is basically when things start to fail, if you run into failures that you're, you're bouncing back, you're rebounding from those failures as quick as possible. You're not going too deep and, and, uh, and letting yourself get too dark and, and it all, um, you know, fear can kind of paralyze you. You're, you're trying to learn from your mistakes as quick as possible and bounce right back up. Um, so to me, I think that was the, the best piece of advice during times like this. And to answer your question, um, as the ball has gotten roll rolling, you know, early, early days of thread, I don't think I questioned that the ball would ever stop rolling. Um, I always felt confident that it would keep going, but there's pivots along the way. And, and just like anyone knows, success isn't just an A to B it's usually A, B, C, D, you know, it's back and forth. It's a zigzag. And so being able to be, um, you know, to adapt and evolve and pivot and pivot in the right ways, um, are the most crucial part of entrepreneurship because ultimately every business is going to be faced with difficulty. And so I think that's the best characteristic you can have is just be um, very 
uh, the ability to adapt. Got it. Yeah, you said lots of really important things here. One thing that really stood out to me was this shallow rock bottom about rebounding as quick as possible. And I think this is an important one that I want to spend some time on because I think, especially for new entrepreneurs or any new business venture, you're really slogging through failure and what doesn't work a lot of the way, especially early on. What have you learned about how to set up this shallow rock bottom so that you're able to rebound from these, you know, these failures throughout the way as you're trying to, you know, slice your way through the, through the jungle to find the, the, the clearing? Yeah, I'm going to answer in, a, in maybe a different way. My, my mom um, has suffered from alcoholism my whole life. And so um, I've seen her and continue today go down this very deep rock bottom. In fact, I don't know if... The, where the rock bottom is, um, it just keeps going down. And, and from the outside perspective, the answer can seem very clear. Um, when you're in that deep, dark, and you're just going downward, it's scary and it's hard to see clearly. And so what I would recommend is surrounding yourself with people who can see clearly when you're not. And that, that means really hiring the people that can see differently or see it from a different angle. Um, that is so crucial. So, you know, hiring your weaknesses, I think is, is number one. Um, I rely very heavily on our executive team to help me see things from a different angle and to speak with candor when, when they do and not to be afraid, you know, that I, I will accept, I'll be able to swallow whatever their opinion is. I want to hear, it. I need to hear that in order to make the wisest decision and, um, I think too oftentimes we're scared of hearing sometimes the truth and, um, you know, maybe we're too prideful to hear it or just scared or whatnot, but ultimately we've tried to create a culture where candor is at the forefront so that nobody's going to feel offended if they hear somebody's opinion, that's very contradicting, that it's not going to explode and it's going to cause uh, contention. And then on, on the flip side that people are also they feel comfortable sharing the truth or sharing their opinion and seeing it from their angle because ultimately we rely on every angle. So like our, our finance guy is going to see it from a finance angle that I wouldn't have seen or that our creative officer wouldn't be able to see or that our marketing or operations, right? They all see it from different angles. And so when we can come together and see this problem or a uh, potential failure that you're mentioning, if we can see that from all different angles, we can avoid it. And then that way we can acknowledge, okay, we're going down the wrong path. That to me is a shallow rock bottom. Being able to realize you're going down a dark hole before it's too late, you know, before it's actually too dark to, to feel any hope of getting out. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I, you mentioned hiring this team that help you see clearly. And I think for folks out there that might just be starting out, they might not have that team yet, but they're probably surrounded by friends and family. I'm sure you've experienced this early on too, where everyone just seems to have an opinion right, about how to run <laughs> your business or advice. How do you, especially when it's that kind of advice or coming from not your team, but people that are around you, how do you filter? How do you decide what to listen to, what not to listen to? Wow, yeah, that one's that one's tough because uh, I try to be humble and, and really try to in, sit on their side of the table. Um, I think our world, especially with, you know, politics, not to get political, but that our world could use more of that. And so, doesn't doesn't mean you have to agree or believe the same way at all. In fact, a lot of times you'll probably walk away being maybe more convinced of your opinion, but ultimately I think we need to hear each other out. Um, and so that approach to business is, um, you know, you, you, you ask questions all the time and you ask them to everyone. It doesn't matter if they're an executive, if they're even in your company or if they're, um, just, you know, customer service rep or what, whatever it is, you just ask, ask questions and really listen and try to sit on their side of the table because they might say something that you didn't think of. But ultimately, if they don't and it doesn't feel right, you know, that that gut check, that's okay. But at least you try to see it from that angle. And so then um, that might open up something else, right? And so um, I don't know the answer, Felix, to the question of when do you when do you filter that one out as that's not right and that's or that's wrong. Sometimes it's not as black and white. Sometimes it's not just one's right, one's wrong, or, um, one's good, one's great. Um, sometimes they're maybe equal and they're just different. And so, um, it's really hard, but I think I've, tr I've trusted my gut along the way. And, um, I don't, I just, I don't know. I think it's, a. Uh, 
a feeling thing sometimes. And obviously the, the heart and the mind can work together. I think when they, when the heart and the mind can align, that's when I, when, when it feels right. So I usually don't move forward if it's just the heart or gut in this, you know, if, if I'm just feeling, Oh, that's the, that's the right way. I don't just make a decision based on that. I use that to then collect more information so that then my mind can click with that as well. And then vice versa, maybe the mind um, is saying one thing, but then the, it doesn't feel right. And so I, I wait kind of until both the mind and the heart are, are really on the same page and then I can feel confident in it. Got it. So you know, speaking of this kind of feedback that you're getting, you know, one thing that I've heard from other entrepreneurs that have gone through the crowdfunding route or that have sold products in person is the kind of feedback that they get from from customers, especially early on, that they didn't realize about whether certain features people liked or certain things that, that they didn't like and affected their development of their product. Did you encounter that? Like, are there, were there certain changes that you made along the way, either through the Kickstarter campaign or selling this in person uh, based on that kind of feedback that made you change the direction of the product? Oh, definitely. In fact, I'm reading a, a book, um, Delivering Happiness by uh, Tony Shea. He's the founder of Zappos. And before they really started focusing on customer service being their core competency, they were focused on more of the, you know, offering the right shoes and whatnot. But until a customer said, um, you know, I got my shoes, I was expecting them to be here in five days. They got here in two, um, best customer service ever. You guys should start an airline. And until that customer said that Tony wasn't really thinking that Zappos core competency was customer service. And so that comment from a customer really mm. changed the, mm-hmm. the route of their business. I would say for us, it was more of a sense of marketing because I thought this was a guy wallet. When I, when I first started this, I did not think women wanted a minimalist wallet because I was just thinking guys carry their wallets in their pocket, girls carry it in their purse and they, or their, you know, they hold a big clutch and they need to carry a lot more. I was just thinking, oh, this is a front pocket wallet. This is nice minimalist, you know, but Ultimately, we noticed that girls, because of the style and the print, and then also it was kind of a, an alternative to carrying a purse around, so they would attach it to like their lanyard or whatnot, that's when we realized, oh, maybe our audience is more female. And so we started changing our marketing a bit, and um, I'm so happy we did because, I mean, females buy <laughs> way more than male, mm. males, and um, you know now our audience is 80% female, 20% male, wow. and I couldn't be more happy with that, you know, and, um, we still offer things to guys, but that definitely changed, you know, based on the customer's reaction, we, um, we changed our marketing. And then, um, uh, another part to that was the product itself was, um, we had a key ring on our wallet, but, um, we didn't offer a lanyard at the time. And so we would see all these girls carrying around their wallets on these lanyards, but there was usually a lanyard that they got at some convention, you know, for free. It was just some dinky lanyard. We realized those lanyards are functional. There may not be like this huge fashion statement, but they're functional. People are using them. Let's make them match our wallet. You know, let's give them something a little bit more quality. Um, use leather. Use uh, hard, you know better hardware and give them something cute. And that that product was born from the customer telling us that's how they were using it. And and the same goes for our chapstick holder as well. I think you have to listen very carefully to what your customer is wanting and and um, and then adapt. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. One thing that you had mentioned to us prior to the interview was that one of the goals that you had when you set out to create this was to disrupt the sleepy category, basically the category that didn't have that much innovation. So what, how much awareness did your, your customers, did the market have when you presented this product to, to them? Yeah, one of the brands that was really up and rising was um, at the time, so 2014, kind of caught my eye was Stant Socks. And I remember listening to the story of Jeff Curl when he was coming up with Stance. And he walked the halls of Target just looking for a category that was sleepy and that could just use some life. And he, you know, went through beauty, went through all these different categories, and then he came to the the wall of of socks, which was all he saw was just a, a sea of white on the wall. And so I don't think he needed the customer right then and and there in Target to say, we want expressive socks, give it to us now. I think he internally saw, why in the world aren't we creating really cool socks? And then he, you know, seeked validation in that from customers. But 
I think the same goes for me was I started to explore different categories and the wall, you know, fell into my lap and I, and I realized, you know, whether or not I ever heard the words, we want a slim minimalist expressive wallet. I don't know if I ever heard those early, early on, but I did realize that the wallet category as I scrolled through Google was the same black or brown bifold that had been around since the eighties, the George Costanza wallet. And that it needed it needed some innovation. It needed some life pumped into it. And so um, that's that's all I needed in order to really get, you know start down that road. And then it became clear as we started to get the wallets actually in people's hands to to fill that validation. Yeah, I think this is a good exercise for anyone out there that is starting a business or thinking about one is to identify these kind of sleepy categories because you have a lot of this kind of pent up demand and no one doesn't no one knows you until they see the the innovation the life that you're breathing into it in front of them are there other companies or categories that you see doing well these days like 20 in 2020 that are capitalizing on sleepy categories with with you know by breathing in like more color and life into them yeah, I think if if anything, this 2020 has opened the doors for entrepreneurs and creatives. Um, and then Shopify is really placed at the the perfect spot to get their idea off the ground easily. And and I think a lot of times people ask me, is this a good idea? Or will you help me come up with an idea? And I realize that you don't have to reinvent the wheel at all. In fact, a lot of times the product that you're you're thinking of, even though it might exist already, you know, a lot of times people go, Oh yeah, but somebody's already doing that. It's like, no, that actually could be good. You know, that the fact that they're doing it and it's succeeding actually means that there's something there. Maybe you, you do a, a different twist on it. You know, maybe you, you change it up a bit. And, and, um, and for us that was putting art on wallets, um, for say, for instance, protein powder or something that, you know, there's a million proteins out there. Maybe that means you're targeting a different demographic at a different price point. You know, maybe that's um, cyclists or hunters or whatever it is. You you don't have to reinvent the wheel per se, but maybe you just take that wheel and you target it to a different audience, or you change the price point, or you know, whatever the maybe it's the different business model. Um, yeah, there's plenty of of companies out there on the market now, and you've seen them in the last five years just sprout up like crazy. Um, and it's so smart to just focus on one category, um, and find that niche because, um, you can succeed in just a niche these days due to e-commerce. Whereas back then you, if you were open up a brick and mortar, say for instance, wallets, I'm not going to fill a whole store with wallets. That just doesn't make sense. But now that I can sell them online and the whole world's my audience, it makes sense. And so now we can, we can pick smaller niches and we can get, um, you know, more granular and we can get, um, more fun, you know, more expressive or whatever the core competency is. But yeah, I think that's a really smart way of thinking about, um, going about ideas, Felix is just, you know, maybe pick something that's just an afterthought or, or sleepy. Mm. Now, when you now look at your website today, there's tons of designs, but when you first launched, let's say, you know, post Kickstarter and you started first putting up your own storefront, how many different designs did you have at that time? Yeah, that was the, it's tricky. And even to this day, it's hard to know how many designs is optimal. Um, early on, because it was our only silhouette, we had, we started out with 36 designs and due to the produ- the way it's produced, we didn't have minimums um, from China. We didn't have to have order 100 of each style. We actually raised enough money in that Kickstarter campaign to buy the printer. Then we could we could do one-offs. We could do we could make 10 of one style or 20. It didn't matter the minimum. And so that, that lent itself to let's explore what our customer wants. And so we threw a lot at the wall. We threw out 36 designs. And, and just saw what people gravitated towards. And, um, from then it's slimmed down. We got to see, okay, this is, this is our demographic. This is what, you know, the colors or the styles they want. Um, and then, you know, we've introduced lanyards and chapstick holders and bags and things. It's, um, we've had to even slim it down further because we don't want, you know, the, the, what is that paralysis? Uh, when there's too many options, you get Mm -hmm. paralyzed, can't make a decision, decision paralysis. Yeah. I, and so we, we've had to keep slimming down and and trying to find that, um, optimum, um, amount. But yeah, I think it's also smart if you can kind of 
early stages, throw a lot at the wall and just see what sticks and let your customer talk to you. What about these days? How do you test a, do you have to, is your production different these days where you do have to put up a a huge order up front or like how nimble can you be with the the product designs before getting the inventory? Yeah, we do have minimums. We're produced in Vietnam and China. And so, yes, there are minimums. And I'd say the majority of businesses are going to fall in in the boat of having minimums. And so you might not have the luxury of just throwing a ton at the wall in terms of style. Um, but I would say, you know, get a few different samples before you make a production run and and get that face-to-face feedback, run focus groups and, and do what you can to um, feel more confident before you pull the trigger on uh, maybe a $20,000 order from, you know, your factory. Um, yeah, I, I don't know really the answer just because I only know from my experience that we had an opportunity to test a lot and we didn't have to hit minimum. So, but the, the principle still applies of throwing a lot at the wall. And that might mean different product categories in general. That might mean, um, different demographics, target demographics. So you might talk with one focus group that's more, um, into dancing and the other one's more into soccer and you just get feedback and maybe there's for some reason, um, a demographic is more attracted to your product and I wouldn't give up too early. You know, you don't want to, um, give up on something that all you had to do is change the price point by a dollar and all of a sudden it, it works, you know, and I think there's a lot of tweaking going on in in the early stages. And even now, you know, we're constantly doing that. It's constant optimizing and refining, but, um, yeah, I think you just have to, you have to listen. You have to have your ears perked for sure. I feel like this kind of product is, or this this product line that you guys have is is really ripe for these repeat purchasers to come back and buy over and over again. Do you have a lot of repeat purchasers coming to your store? Yeah. So currently, our goal is twenty five percent returning. Actually, sorry, our goal is thirty. It's currently twenty five percent returning rate. That is thirty is good for us because we're we're acquiring so many new customers that we wouldn't want it to be all returning. Mm-hmm. And so we found a good balance is actually having 70% new customers and then 30% returning. Um, that might be different for each business. Um, but yeah, there's, there's quite a few, um, returning customers. And I think a lot of it comes from the price point is, is low enough that you can buy multiple. It's also the price point fits for a gift purchase. So there's a lot of um, gifting with our product. And so it really does lend itself to um, a repeat buy. I would, you know, when trying to come up with an idea, I would, if like right now, if I was to start a new business, I would try to come up with an idea that lent itself to word of mouth marketing and not because currently we're so reliant on Facebook and Instagram ads to, to drive the traffic to our site that I envy the people like, you know, purple mattress or, um, you know, other like Peloton bikes that word of mouth marketing is the bulk of their traffic. And so I would try to come up with a product that I know people are going to talk about and, and recommend. And so, um, when you can, when you can get that, you're, the flood of traffic that is organic and then repeat purchases is high. Mm, yeah, because every new customer you acquire is a potential uh, new kind of node that can could branch out and get you even more customers. Now, I think one of the, the the table stakes, the bare minimums for having a product that is really spreads through word of mouth is obviously having a great product. But other than that, is there something about a product that you can can identify that makes it makes word of mouth almost native to the product makes it something that people want to talk about? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, in fact, I've just been asking people what what are products that you talk about? And I've been trying to see, you know, and really make note of of products people talk about. Usually I would say they're higher price point, unfortunately. Um, that's not ideal. And the reason I think people feel the need to talk about those high price point items is because they kind of need to justify their purchase, whether or not mm. it's, you know, they're justifying it in a right way or not. They're, they're kind of needing to justify the purchase. They need someone else to agree that, that they yeah, made exactly. a wise purchase. <laughs> like, yeah. cool. You, yeah. You made a good purchase there, dude. Like you're good. You know, like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, um, usually for high price point items, that could be the case. You know, Tesla is one that's just like high word of mouth because it's a status symbol. So I think 
if it's brand related um, and and they they pin it as a status symbol, then um, those people talk about those because they're you know people are prideful by nature and they want people to know them, you know, notice them. And so those things um, commonly get talked about. I think within certain demographics, things get talked about. So for instance, moms, when they're pregnant or they just had a baby, literally the only thing they talk about is that. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you're, if you're mm. going through that, but <laughs> I just, I just know because my, my, you know, I have two little girls and it's just like every, when my wife's pregnant, I just know that the girls are going to huddle and they're going to talk about birth and, and babies and things. And that's, and it's not a hit to them. It's just, it's, it's common because that's an important thing mm -hmm. going on in their life. And they want, they want to pull together a community. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes pregnancy is really hard and you just need help. And so anyways, you're, you're talking about products that help, right? Like, okay, my baby is not sleeping. What, um, what products do you know that will help? You know? And it's like the snoo and the snoo is like this bed that like, you know, helps get your baby to sleep and it's magic. And my wife talks about it nonstop. And it's like when things can bring value to you or to someone you love, then it, it's an automatic word of mouth. You know, it's like an, it's, it's going to happen in conversation. Um, and so, you know, that's like one for babies. I skateboard. There's, there's things that we talk about in skateboarding, like, oh, hollow trucks, you know, they're lighter. So like you need to get hollow trucks. That's just a, a, a given now. And so it's, to me, there's in each, each, uh, industry, there's going to be different products that people talk about and different reasons why they talk about it. But I think to be able to kind of put yourself in a situation of like, would I talk about that? Like if I received that, would I want my friends to know and, and why? Mm. And then once you pinpoint that, then I think, um, you, you got something. Yeah. No, speaking of having a meta moment, we are having a second baby and we just got gifted a snoo. So we're excited. To, oh, nice, uh, dude. See it. <laughs> dude, see your it life's going to be changed. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I don't know how the first baby was, but it's, it, you'll, we didn't you'll have love it. it. So it'd be a, a perfect AB test, maybe. So when it comes to a, a creative product that's really, you know, you're, you're, it's everything about your product is really based on a lot of these designs. So mm -hmm. when you are getting it out to your, your market and you're trying to understand more about whether it's a good design or not, what kind of feedback, what kind of answers, what kind of questions, what does that conversation look like with you, with your customer when it is a creative and visual, a design focused product? Yes. I think there's twofold. You have to segment both the, the art and the science is what we call it. So the art is the style, you know, the, the graphic that's on the product. The science is the, what makes up that, that product. So like the silhouette itself. So if you removed art, is this product a good product? Is it functional? Does it serve the purpose that people are wanting? You know, and, and I think you have to ask two separate questions. Um, early stages, I think you're, you're gaining, um, first validation on the product itself. So set art aside and you're just asking, okay, does this product, um, does this work and who does it work for? And once you can nail down the who, then the art becomes a little bit more clear. So then you can start to validate that. And so maybe you land on, okay, this works for like, again, hunters, um, you know, surfers and, um, uh, gym goers. And then you, and then the art, um, you might, so now you throw a camo on it, you throw a hunting orange on it and you, and you ask hunters, okay, is this something you would work, um, you would use and do you like the style? Then you ask the the surfers, it's the same thing with the surf styles. And then, you know, and you kind of go down the line and I think then you start to get a feel for, oh, okay, this, this, um, this product works really well for the gym goer because fill in the blank. Um, they don't, they want their hands free when they're working out, uh, whatever it else, whatever it is, you know, you fill in the blank there. And then they go, and then you go, okay, that works really strong as the silhouette. Now, what styles do the gym goers want? They probably want something that looks somewhat, you know, performance driven or, uh, something that you'd see on like a Nike shoe. Right. And then you can now validate the art. I think, um, you have to ask different questions for both the silhouette, the product, and then you also have to ask on the art and, and kind of get validation on both. And, um, when you marry art and science, it gets tricky, but it's, uh, 
it's fun. It's, it's honestly my, my favorite thing is the art side of things. So I'm assuming that you learned a lot about the marketing during this process too. And you had mentioned that you're growing very quickly with these new customers you're acquiring. So, and like about a quarter of your audience is uh, a quarter to a third is our repeat customers. How does your marketing change between these two, between acquiring new customers and attracting or getting customers to return and make another purchase? How does the marketing change? It's, it's pretty much the same marketing. You just go, you just start to, um, you'd start to tweak it and, and optimize more. So as an example, we focus internally on email SMS for our, our repeat. That's kind of like our biggest sources of, of owned marketing channels that we can, we can get them to repurchase. So we're limited, right? We have to get people in this funnel first in order to be able to utilize those channels. And then, um, so to acquire customers, we're looking at ads, um, very heavily on, on Facebook and Instagram ads that drive people into this funnel. And then we can, um, follow up with, with, uh, email and SMS and become more reliant on those. I don't want to personally, I don't try to get too wide in the tactics or the, you know, adding more bells and whistles, you know, every t- every year, I feel like mm-hmm. there's so many different new marketing approaches, right. Um, you know, offline marketing or, or otherwise you can just constantly be adding to this engine, but ultimately it might not be about adding more to the engine. It might just be about tweaking the engine and refining it and making sure it's efficient. And so our approach right now is, uh, is really just optimized. Let's look at email. How can we optimize our email flows? How many campaigns do we send out a week? Um, who are we sending them out to? How, how can we segment those people out? Same with SMS. And the list goes on and on about optimizing. Currently, I, I just don't think that we need more. Um, we just need to go deeper in what it's what's existing. And I think oftentimes it's it's uh, it's just so hard to say no when when someone goes, okay, here's this new tactic of marketing. Here's the performance. You know, here's the ROI that we got. It's really hard to say no to adding more. But I think you're actually better off if you just keep with what you mm-hmm. know and what works and just go mm-hmm. deeper in it. Yeah, that's a really great point about this depth versus breadth in your marketing. I think probably newer entrepreneurs that haven't been have not been burned yet from jumping around too much are usually looking for the next next thing. Right? I think a lot of the marketing is like that. A lot of marketing from the gurus are all about jumping onto the next thing rather than refining and getting better at what is at least looks like it's working a little bit. Right now, for you, you mentioned that this is still a challenge for you, even though you you've grown your business to this scale. So what, what tips do you have for someone that can, that needs that help to force themselves to focus on just what's already in front of them rather than the next shiny thing? I think when you, your approach to business, I always look at it as you're building somewhat of a vehicle. Now you have to build the vehicle, but you also have to know where you're going with that vehicle. I think that's number one. Why am I building this vehicle is the most important question you can ask yourself. Um, once you have that, then everything can be built around that. Um, but I would say that first vehicle you're building is probably a bike. You know, you're not, you're not going to, you're not building a car at this point. You just, you just need a simple engine. You need a chain wheels, handlebar, you know, like you just need the basics. And, um, a lot of times that's dependent, you know, what the quote basics are is dependent on the product and who you're targeting. So for an, an example, what I mean by that is we had, Instagram, uh, in 2015, when it was like really getting going and influencer marketing was strong, um, we saw that opportunity and we knew, okay, instead of going into Twitter and Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram, let's just go as hard as we can in one of them. You know, we're, we don't need to add more. So let's just focus on one and go really hard at it. Um, if that was to fail for whatever reason, then we have a shallow rock bottom and you go, okay, cool. Instagram didn't work. And so you want to give it enough legs, enough to find that out, but you don't want to go too deep down that road and go, oh crap, we spent too much resources here. Let's back it up. So anyways, have a shower rock bottom. Okay, cool. Maybe it wasn't Instagram. Maybe it was Pinterest. Let's go test Pinterest. Luckily, we landed on Instagram working. And so once we found out, okay, influencer marketing, um, we want to test that. Now it's our approach to influencer marketing. How do we, how do we leverage influencer marketing? Because right at the beginning, nobody really knew influencer marketing, you know, influencers were charging everything from hundred thousand dollars to like $200. And it was like, 
why, you know, nobody could understand that. Right. So we, we took the approach. Our strategy there was let's not have any strings attached. We're not contracting anything. We're just going to send them products. So we just said, Hey, we'd love to send you product. Love what you're doing. Love your feed. Um, you have a shipping address we can send to, we'd send them product. And if they posted awesome, if they didn't awesome, it's whatever. And that was our approach to it. And we just doubled down on that really hard because then we started to see these organic posts and these posts were not sponsored, right? They, these people just loved the product and, and they were speaking authentically. And so anyways, we started to see that and, and, and we went deeper on that. And the same goes for every single tactic. I don't think you need to go too wide. I mean, um, to understand, you know, what it takes to build a bike, I think relying on other people. So other people who have done it before you, um, and usually you find those people on podcasts. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts. I wake up early, early days of thread. I'd probably work at, wake up at four 30 or five o'clock and just start listening to podcasts and reading articles and Shopify masters being one of them. And I just, just tried to absorb all this information to know, okay, what, what do I need to build this bike? Even though it was simple engine, I just needed to see it from all different angles. And then I realized, okay, cool. The bare bones of our business are, you know, A, B, C, D, and that was it. That's all I needed. Um, so I think it, it differs for every industry, product, customer base, you name it. Um, but I think the simplicity wins the day 10 out of 10. Yeah. And speaking of, of first focusing on, on refinement first before ever expanding, one thing you had mentioned was that more recently you have expanded into from, from wallets into, into carry products and accessories. So tell us about that. Like what made you make that expansion? What made you feel ready to, to expand the product line? When I asked I, my mentor early on, I, um, I asked him, I want to launch backpacks, you know, and it was like the second year of business. And he's like, and I was just like, what, like, should I do that? Should I not do it? He's like, you'll know when you should do that. And, and I said, how? He's like, you just, you'll just know, you'll feel it. Like you'll feel that it's the right timing. And, um, I've been holding on to that day of like, when do we launch backpacks? Cause that's kind of like my vision, mm -hmm. you know, of like this all things carry. Um, I, I haven't felt that yet. Um, and I'm still waiting. And I just realized, you know, the, the further down this road we've gotten, I realized I'm so glad I didn't get into that for so many different reasons, be it, you know, margin or, you know, cost of goods, you know, all, you know, that you name it, but I'm just glad I, I did. I listened to my gut there. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, when you're thinking of an idea, I think you should have a, a grander vision of what it can turn into. And I think, uh, reading an article recently about the, some of the, the, um, direct to consumer native brands that have hit over a hundred million. I think, I think it was all of them had, if not, you know, maybe, uh, the majority of mass majority of them were surrounded from a small category that had an opportunity to grow into a broader category. And I think that's part of the vision that you need to have is can what I'm going down this, this, uh, road that I'm going down, can it grow into something bigger? You know, I don't think Nike, um, I'm, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but when they were doing shoes, they probably had an idea of this could turn into more than just shoes, but they strategically chose shoes from the very beginning. They got, you know, quite literally their foot in the door with shoes and then they, they could expand that later. And so to answer your question, Felix, I, from day one, I knew that wallets were just our foot in door. It was, it was a, a category that needed some innovation and I knew I could bring that, but the, the bigger vision was that was just a way I can get on the shelf. And then, um, later on, once we could build the brand and, and the audience size, then we could turn it into something bigger. So I think starting with the end in mind is, um, extremely important and then have kind of a, a plan of, you know, your steps to that end goal is, is also important. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I spoke to another entrepreneur on a podcast, uh, Taft. They started off, they sell shoes now, but they literally start off socks, knowing that would be way easier to sell socks versus then expanding the shoes. So um, yeah, it's definitely a topic that I've heard from other entrepreneurs. Um, so, you know, it's been a year of learning. I think it's something that you've mentioned, a year of learning, a year of change. And I'll leave this last question. What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you or the business has learned over the past year um, that has changed the, the way you do things as a business? I think the, the number one characteristic amongst all of our employees has been humility. And 
I, it's in our, one of our core values. And so when I'm hiring, that's probably the number one characteristic I even look at and, you know, ask questions around that to kind of get a feel for, is this person, um, you know, so stuck in their ways or are they able to evolve and, um, and, and are they able to listen to others and not be contentious and, and all that to me, the, I think the result of being humble and having a team that's humble has resulted in our success. I don't think we would have gotten to where we are without humility. And so that's become more and more apparent, um, through times like COVID where humility, um, is, is so crucial. You can't, again, going back to this pendulum, you can't let, you can't swing too far one way or the other. You can't get too down. You can't get too prideful. And, um, so being able to be in control there, uh, it just goes to show, you know, that, um, making decisions out of humility and being more conservative actually could pay off in the long term. Um, to give you an example, it could be very enticing for me as the founder to go and raise a bunch of money, right? Um, you know, number of companies within Utah are doing it. And that's kind of almost like a stamp of success, right? Like we raised X amount of dollars. And to me, I, I don't care about that. And I don't care about, you know, I guess my personal approach, I don't really care about social media. I don't care about being the face of the brand at all. Um, and I, I think that lends itself to being more conservative so that now in COVID hit we're we're not reliant, we're not in debt. We're not, um, we're not having to, uh, report to a number of investors. And, and to me, I can then now make decisions not based out of that stress. Um, we can kind of be in control of our own destiny and, um, you know, we're profitable. And I think that just all goes along with having the end in mind because, you know, for thread, the end is for us is building a legacy brand, something that will last a hundred years that can promote good, that can promote education and it's not about a quick dollar. It's not about, you know, flipping a business within a few years and selling out for millions and then watch it die. We want to, we want to build something great. And so, um, having that in mind helps, it helps you make solid sound decisions that are built for long-term success. And humility is so attached to that because, um, you know, as you're finding success, it only gets more and tricky, more and more tricky to say no to, um, investors that want to give you money and the list goes on of just, um, you know, being the face of the brand and whatnot. And so I think there's, um, humility is one that I've learned over the past, I wouldn't say just year, but just years of running a business is so crucial to our success. Awesome. Great answer. So threadwallets.com is a website. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Colby. Oh, thanks, Felix. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.